Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me as always is Aaron Miller. Uh, in this episode, we're going to do a brief follow-up on our last couple of weeks when we discussed the Apple event in September, but mostly we're going to be talking about the iPhone and things related to the iPhone uh, with a brief discussion of watch OS. So we'll kick off the show by talking about the two new versions of Apple software that came out this past week, uh, iOS 9 and watch OS. Of course, originally scheduled to both come out last Wednesday, uh, but WatchOS eventually pushed off until Monday due to a last-minute bug. Um, We'll then talk about a specific feature within iOS 9, which is content blockers, which have been in the news quite a bit over the last few weeks, especially over the last week or so. Um, And that will form our question of the week, which will be um, what impact is Apple's introduction of these content blockers likely to have on the web and ad-supported web businesses? Um, So that will be the middle part of the show. And then the last part of the show, we'll talk about the new iPhones. And we've talked about features and so on announced at the event. But this week, obviously, we saw the official reviews come out from people that had early review units. Um, And so we'll discuss those and also discuss the uh, pre-orders numbers and also the pre-order process. Uh, And then we'll wrap up, as usual, with our weekly pick. And Aaron uh, is up to bat this week for that. So... We'll start out by talking about these two new uh, operating system releases from this week, the iPhones, iOS 9, and of course that's on the iPads as well, um, and watchOS 2. So, you know, I've been using iOS 9 on an iPhone 6 Plus since uh, very shortly after it was announced through the developer program. Uh, And Aaron, I think, has been using the public beta um, not quite as long, but for quite a while as well. Uh, But of course, this week it came out officially, and I I took the opportunity to install it on essentially all the other iOS devices I have in the house. So uh, an iPhone 6 and a couple of iPads. Um, And uh, so I've I've experienced it both in the sort of preview form and in the final form on those various different devices. Uh, But we thought we'd talk about some of the features that we've enjoyed in those and kind of our take on some of those. So Aaron, why don't you kick things off and talk about some of the features that you've been uh, enjoying and, and some of your other thoughts about iOS 9. Sure. I, yeah, I think for me, the thing that was most immediately obvious and that if the upgrade to iOS that I've most consistently benefited from has been about Siri. Uh, it, they're all really refinements. I mean, it's, you know, there are some enhancements to the way Siri works, uh, especially with, you know, the, the predictions of what app you might want to use at a certain time, for example. <clears throat> I, um, I, I've enjoyed those changes. I, in fact, I'll give you one example. Um, my garage, I use the LiftMaster, and they have the remote that you can use for a smartphone app. And when I back out of the driveway, if I leave after my wife does, I'm the one who closes the garage door. And what I found is that Siri noticed I was pulling up this app at the same time every morning. And so the, the garage door app for LiftMaster and now it can open a lot more easily on my phone because it just shows up in the Siri list of suggested Right, apps. okay, yeah. And it just, it learned that by habit. It was a really kind of cool, convenient thing. In fact, it's funny because I didn't even notice it was happening for the first little while. And I sort of, you know, it's funny because some, a lot of these iOS features that get added, uh, unless you're deliberately seeking them out and sort of changing your habits, you it's easy to overlook a lot of them. Mm-hmm. And uh, this was one of them. And then I stumbled into it. I was like, duh, of course this is working this way. And so... So now when I close my garage door with my phone, it's it, it the app is always there and ready immediately. So is that on your lock screen or is that when you open up the phone and then you activate the sort of search box and that kind well, of thing? It both. And so I've been mostly activating it from the lock screen. Cause okay, great. Yeah. So where the continuity app shows up, 
Um, mm-hmm. It's now the suggested app, the MyQ app. Is right. Okay. So, so the, the bottom left corner of the screen. Yeah. And so it's, mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's, just, it, and the truth is, I think this is where Apple excels is in those little tiny refinements. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I think a challenge Apple has is teaching users to take advantage of them. But, uh, but this is one that I, I, I pulled up my phone and normally I would unlock my phone, go to where my garage door app is and then close my garage and, and then I paid attention for once to the little lock screen app, and there it was. Right, yes. Well, yeah, that's good. It's interesting. I, I've had a similar experience with directions. I haven't used it a ton yet, but um, it's not so much directions, actually, as it is travel time. Um, but I have certain things that I do every week where I'm in the same place every time, uh, but it's never actually been in my calendar with a location. And yet um, iOS has been smart enough to pick up on the fact that I'm usually in these places and then traveling to these other places at predictable times each week. Um, and I noticed this with iOS 8, actually, but iOS 9 does it a lot more proactively now. With iOS 8, it just showed up in the um, notification shade. Um, now it shows up on the lock screen as well. But, you know, I play soccer uh, three times a week, uh, twice in one place and once in another place. And even though I have soccer in my calendar in two, two of those occasions, there's never been a location associated with it. And yet on my lock screen, uh, when it's about time for me to leave to go there, it'll tell me how long it's going to take me to get there. And when I'm usually coming home and there's a little thing on my lock screen telling me how long it's going to take me to get home, um, and I've noticed that with a few other sort of regular things that I do as well, where it's it's picked up on the fact that I'm in these same places and will proactively serve up that kind of thing. And I think, you know, these are sort of subtle signals about Apple gathering this information about you, keeping it on the phone, you know, as we've talked about before, uh, but then using that to serve up other stuff to you as well. Um, one of the... Other interesting things about iOS 9, of course, is this deep linking um, into apps. So um, a combination of search um, where apps can expose uh, information within apps to um, the spotlight or Siri search on the uh, on the home screen. And then uh, as you tap on something that, to take you deep into the app, into the exact spot that you need to be in. Um, that sounds great in theory. Um, uh, Outlook, uh, Microsoft's email app, which I use for email on my phone, does that now, which is uh, helpful. Um, I haven't noticed many other apps doing that yet. Dropbox, I think, supports it as well. I haven't really tried it there yet. Um, but some of the obvious ones like Yelp and um, Movie Times and things like that, none of that seems to be uh, updated yet for this. And, and Apple has a list of apps that it's promoting that support this technology on its uh, App Store homepage. But um, I haven't noticed a lot of apps taking advantage of that yet, which I find interesting. That's true. I, you know, I, that's obviously all developer-driven. I worry about developers doing it in a way that gets annoying. Um, yeah, I think there's my consent too. Which I, well, there are definitely times in which I just prefer the web interface to certain companies' apps. Um, YouTube is the is the biggest example, but YouTube has been direct linking into their app anyway um, for a while. But I much prefer the YouTube web interface, mm-hmm. and so I'm curious how uh, <clears throat> I'm curious how that's going to change over time and how well developers are going to implement that. I, I do think it is kind of jarring. It's happened to me a couple of times since uh, the iOS 9 update went public where I've tapped on a link that I expected to take me to a web page and then the app opens. And mm. it, it hadn't occurred to me that that would be a jarring experience, especially because I, I think generally as a concept, I think the deep linking is really cool. But uh, I wonder how many sort of average iPhone customers are going to be either surprised or annoyed at that happening. 
Right. I mean, they'll get used to it eventually, but it, but it is kind of a jarring experience when you click on mm. a link and it takes you into an app instead of to because uh, you could be in Safari on your iPad, mm-hmm. and then you tap on a link and instead of taking you to the page, it takes a whole new app opens. Right. And you know the the animation is dramatic and you see it there and mm-hmm. I wonder how many users are going to be annoyed by this at first rather than please. Yes, it's interesting. I mean, some apps, some web apps give you the option of opening it within their app or carrying on where you are. Google Maps is an example of that that doesn't force you straight into the Google Maps app, even if you have it installed, um, but gives you the option, uh, which I quite like because then you're sort of actively making that decision. There's one app that I use that um, keeps throwing me into the app for content that isn't there, which I find really frustrating. So it throws me into the app and it, it says, you know, content not found or something like that, when really it's content that I know is on their website where in the past it would have taken me to that content on their website and instead it's throwing me into the app so there are some sort of wrinkles to that as well Uh, another interesting thing is um, you know spotlight search as it used to be called and i'm never sure what the name is now is it siri search spotlight search i'm not sure what the official name is anymore um, because a lot of this stuff has now been moved under the the heading of siri Um, but it used to be um, when it was only first party apps that were included that you could specify which ones you wanted to be included and in what order you wanted to show to have them show up Um, if you go into the settings now in ios 9 every app you have installed on ios regardless of whether it supports deep linking or uh, inclusion in that search now appears in that list Um, and so you know i've got 100 and something apps installed on my phone Uh, so going through that list and manually turning them on and off is going to be a total nightmare and so i just haven't done it but i do worry that you know, as more of them start to support this stuff, there's going to be a lot of cruft and stuff that I don't really want to appear in that search field when I'm searching for movie times that I've got stuff that happens to have a similar name in my Dropbox or, you know, restaurant listings or whatever showing up there as well. Um, what I find interesting is that on the Apple TV which has this kind of universal search feature now too, uh, Apple's been much more protective of that. And they've basically said, we're only going to turn it on on a case-by-case basis um, for specific apps rather than letting any app uh, tap into that. Um, And in some ways, I kind of wish that the approach to the search function had been a bit more careful on iOS as well, uh, because I worry that it's going to get cluttered very quickly, potentially. I think that's a great point. I mean, if you look at how, for example, the way notifications became really bothersome for a while. When Apple first started letting push notifications become baked into every app, there was a stretch when it was essentially advertising that these apps were pushing out um, with the notifications, and Apple really had to crack down on that. I think search creates the same opportunity for app developers, and the idea that all app developers will show enough restraint to not use search as as a way to spam iPhone mm-hmm. users is optimistic. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think so yeah. I think it's going to happen. I think you're going to have to see Apple cracking down on it. I, I, you know, I don't I wouldn't even necessarily blame an app developer for looking into the potential of that because mm-hmm. of how competitive, you know, the App Store is and how hard it is to monetize apps in the App Store with in content purchases and all that. So mm-hmm. or I mean in app purchases. And so <clears throat> I think there's a there is a risk there that search is going to get cluttered and annoying. And yep. the the idea of fiddling in settings the way you were describing is not a good solution. 
Right. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it'd be nice if you could just say, okay, this is showing up here. Make sure this never shows up here again, rather than having to go in settings, find that app and switch the toggle over. Right. It'd be nice if you could fix the problem right there in search. Maybe they'll add that in time. Um, do you have any devices on any iPads on which you're using um, the side-by-side -side, uh, or any of the other multitasking features? So I have an iPad mini, so I can't do the side-by-side, -side, but I am able to use the slide-over feature, which oh, okay. which has been, it, again, it's one of those features that you got have to get into the habit of using. Mm -hmm. I think uh, and, and during the entire time I was running the public beta, I thought, well, messages is probably the time I'll use it most, but I just found myself switching over to the messages app rather than using slide-over. <clears throat> the one app that may end up being the only one I ever use the slide over feature for in a dedicated way is 1Password, which just got updated with when iOS 9 came out, and it was updated to include compatibility with slide over, and that's really convenient. And so, for example, when I'm in the Amazon app and I have to pull up my Amazon password, which is long and complicated, I can do the slide over to get to that password quickly. And, and I really like that. And I think that's an example of where the multitasking is done right, where the app developer mm -hmm. understands the way it ought to work. Right. Um, of course, the developer doing 1Password is awesome, and it's a great, great platform. Like, mm -hmm. you know, it's a series, like a great family of apps. And so, um, yeah, I don't know. The split screen one, I, I know that the new the iPad Mini 4 is compatible with the split screen. I'm having a hard time imagining that being useful with how small the screen mm -hmm. is. Right. Um, but uh, I don't know. I, I, I guess I'm, I find myself drawn to my, to my laptop when I need to do, you know, more involved work. And so that may be the reason that I don't picture myself using split screen very much on an iPad. Yeah, I can see it being very much more useful on the bigger screen on the iPad Pro. Um, and, you know, Apple's been very open about the fact that they developed this feature with the iPad Pro in mind. And that seems like where it's really going to shine, where you could have two almost sort of full-size iPad Air apps side by side. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm curious. I haven't really used it at all on, on the iPads that I have. And that's partly because uh, at least one of them is too old to support it. But, um, yeah, that's something that I'm looking forward to trying out more of. Um, obviously, the other thing that got updated this week was watchOS 2. Um, and I, I installed that the first day. Um, and I haven't noticed dramatic changes so far. And part of that is that a lot of the third-party apps that I use haven't updated yet um, to support native apps. And I'm curious to see how long that will be. Um, we did have a discussion last week about the sort of comparative lack of killer apps on the watch. Um, and until now, I think it's been very easy to blame that on the fact that apps couldn't really run natively on the watch. But now that they can, um, it'll be interesting to see how, how that develops. And you had some thoughts about that, I know, Aaron. Well, I think, yeah, and it's exactly that. I, before, if there were no killer apps, you could blame the limitations of watchOS. And now that that's no longer the case, really, if, there are, if killer apps have a hard time coming about on the watch, I think it's more of an indictment of the entire platform. And indictment is a strong word. It's still super early in the life of the watch, and so it's hard to want to make a final judgment. But eventually it needs to have a killer app of some kind or, or multiple versions. I mean, something like what the iPhone was able to accomplish. The iPad, too, has you know killer apps that make the iPad uniquely useful. Um, it's, it seems obvious to me where the Apple TV is going to be able to accomplish that. <clears throat> and, you know, in augmented television watching, for example, like the MLB app that was displayed at the keynote, at the event, it was, mm. it, it was fantastic and exciting to think about what t television watching could become. 
Right. So that's all completely evident. And certainly the health tracking on the watch is is a really important feature. You probably saw in the news about that teenager who who spotted a pretty serious health problem because of his watch. His heart right. rate remained heart elevated, rate was, and mm-hmm. he was able to go to the hospital in time to get treatment, and it probably right. saved his life. Mm-hmm. And in a real sense, I mean, that's, I guess, like a not a killer app, but a saving app. But the reality is it's not an app. I mean, that's a core function of the watch. Right. And, and, and so whether or not we can get killer apps by independent developers, by third-party developers, is still a big question for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm having a hard time imagining what they might be. Um, and it may, it, it may just need to be the case that we wait until the hardware on the watch improves mm-hmm. and that it gets new hardware features to make that uh, more accessible. Like, for example, I think about the iPhone before it could record video and then what's happened and all the amazing apps that have come out since the iPhone's been able to record video. I just wonder if maybe there's a hardware enhancement in the wings that is mm. going to make a bigger difference. Yeah, no, that's very interesting. I mean, I, I've gone on record as saying as I thought that Watch OS 2 would make a huge difference to the quality and range of the apps that would be available on the watch. Um, and, you know, as of right now, I'm not seeing that. And it is still very early days. But, you know, I was expecting a whole flood of new apps to come out, you know, press releases, press coverage, and so on of these new apps that were taking advantage of all this functionality that was now available and just hasn't happened yet. And it's possible it will just take a few weeks. Maybe people are trying to avoid the kind of iPhone launch period, um, you know, for other Apple news and, and fear, out of fear that it will get drowned out. But, yeah, I'm not seeing it yet, which is interesting. So I'm curious to see if that changes in the next couple of months. Yeah, I mean, when the when the iPhone got apps, there was a total gold rush. I mean, it was, mm-hmm. you know, the, it was everybody trying to get apps out. And those really early ones that stood out did really well as a result. And there were no-name indie developers, one-man shops mm-hmm. that made millions of dollars off of this. <clears throat> when, right. And then when the iPad came out, that didn't happen. Mm-hmm. There wasn't this gold rush. In fact, a lot of people still kind of had to figure out, okay, in what ways is an iPad better and more useful than an iPhone? In what ways is it not? And how do you develop an app for the iPad? And it took a little while for developers to figure out that out. And so having those two histories to compare side by side, it feels like the watch is more like the iPad in the sense that developers are still kind of getting the hang of this. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, with relation to those two new OS releases, the other thing I wanted to talk about was the upgrade process. Um, how, how did it go at your end? I know I had quite a few problems along with a lot of other people on the day that iOS 9 was released um, with you know d- downloads starting and then immediately kind of conking out and getting an error message. And I saw lots of people within the first couple of hours getting similar error messages. Didn't have the same issue when I was plugged into iTunes. There it seemed to work fine. But when I was trying to go over the air with all three of the devices I was trying to update, that kept failing for the first couple of hours. Well, my experience was to to delay. <laughs> so right. I, I mean, I, I already had my my iPhone and iPad on the on iOS 9 because of the public beta. Mm-hmm. And so the only other device I needed to worry about updating was my wife's phone. Mm. And with that, I tread lightly because, <laughs> you know, I, I mean... I'm kind of the tech support in the house when it comes to stuff like that. And knowing that other people are having trouble, I just kind of never got around to it. I I made sure that her phone is backed up and that Mm -hmm. that her backup is current, but I haven't actually gotten around to upgrading to iOS 9. I think that's a Mm -hmm. combination of 
there not being any super compelling iOS 9 features yet for her. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And knowing that people were having issues, I sort of decided to wait. So Right. Yeah, I know there were other issues that I didn't have, but apparently the slide to upgrade thing wasn't working um, for some people. And I know Apple's just issued a 9.0.1 release today that's supposed to deal with that. Um, obviously doesn't solve it for anybody who already upgraded, but... Um, we'll solve it sort of retroactively. But there did seem to be some glitches. And it's, you know, I mean, for all that I and other people sort of mocked Microsoft for their strange sort of uh, phased release of Windows 10 a few months ago, you know, I didn't hear many issues of actually getting the file to download when it became available. Um, and, you know, that was a much smaller total number. I think they've, only, they've got less than 100 million people on it still now, um, a couple of months after that was released. But, you know, and Apple has several hundred million of people potentially trying to download it within the first few hours. But, you know, it just feels like this is something that should be solvable, um, you know, by provisioning enough server capacity and so on. Um, that it should be something that they could deal with and make a much less painful experience. And yet, for whatever reason, they're not able to do that. And then, of course, they had to pull the watchOS release at the last minute and postpone that for a few days. And then even when that was available, there are all kinds of bugs and issues with, with that update as well. So it just feels like something that, that you know happens on this very predictable schedule and yet uh, still has very unpredictable elements when you're actually trying to upgrade some of these devices. I do think it also just shows us how hard this really is. I, I mean, it's true that with, with cloud-based stuff, whether it's software updates or iCloud or, you know, photos in the cloud or any of that kind of stuff, Apple doesn't exactly have a stellar track record. But at the same time, I, you know, I just think this is hard. I, I wouldn't want to be in charge of it, that's for sure. <laughs> yes, nor I. Um, kind of related to that, and we won't spend a lot of time on this, but um, I wrote a couple of posts this week, one for Tech Pinions, which came out on Monday, and then uh, another one that I wrote later on Monday about a, a sort of related topic, which was the adoption numbers for iOS 9. Um, you know, given the much smaller file size and some of the other things uh, with iOS 9, it seemed like it might well be a faster and uh, higher penetration update than iOS 8 was, which was quite a bit lower than iOS 7 uh, at comparable periods. Um, when I wrote my Tech Opinions post, we didn't have numbers from Apple yet, so I was using numbers from Mixpanel. And then Apple came out Monday morning with a number that was over 50% of the base had already upgraded to iOS 9, um, while Mixpanel was still showing about 30% for the same period. So the second post that I wrote was kind of comparing Mixpanel's and Apple's numbers and seeing why there might be such a discrepancy between them. Um, where they both seem to agree is that the upgrade rate is indeed higher, and I'm curious to see if that carries on throughout the whole sort of life cycle of iOS 9 or if that's something that slows down at some point. Um, but uh, but certainly, you know, Apple saying this is the fastest release ever. And, um, you know, if you want to know the details on, on the differences between Apple's numbers and the mixed panel ones, uh, have a look at that blog post and I'll include a link. But, but any other thoughts on the sort of uh, adoption numbers, Aaron? No, I, I mean, I think like you that, that if they're, that the faster uptake is is largely because of the file size issue. <clears throat> I mean, that was stopping so many people from upgrading last year to iOS right. 8 because it was simply too big of a download. And you had people on 16-gig iPhones that just didn't have the space for it. And then having right. to go through the effort of plugging into iTunes to make the update was just a hassle. And I think it put mm-hmm. a lot of people off. And this year, that's not the, the same problem. And kudos to Apple for recognizing that's what was slowing down updates. Right. And solving, you know, largely solving the problem. I wouldn't be surprised. Mm-hmm. I mean, iOS 9 is still not a small update. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. be surprised if there are people out there whose phones are at capacity that are still, you know, waiting until they finally get around to 
plugging their phone into iTunes to get the update going. Right, right. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so we'll move on now to our question of the week, which is related to what we've just been talking about in that it's about um, content blockers, which are, of course, a, a feature of iOS 9. Yeah, and and the question, I mean, there are a lot of ways to attack this big issue of content blockers, and the reality is it's been around for decades because people have been blocking ads and and other content for <clears throat> for almost as long as the web has been around. But mobile content blocking, at least on iOS, is a brand new thing. And, and, and I think the impact is the interesting question here. So the question is, what impact will iOS content blockers have on the web and on ad-supported businesses? Uh, it's been a really prominent news item this weekend, but I suspect there are people who aren't up to speed on all the details here. So can you give us first a context to understand what's happening? Sure, yeah. So I think the simple answer here is that Apple introduced this new functionality in iOS 9, um, and specifically it's a Safari extension. So there have always been extensions for Safari on iOS 10, but they haven't been on uh, iOS until now. Um, and this is actually one of two new extension types in iOS 9. One is these content blockers, and the other one uh, is shared links. So Twitter and Facebook have been able to put links into the shared links area within Safari, but that's been limited to those two apps until now. And now third-party app developers can push things to that area too. Um, but with regard to content blockers, there were a couple of sessions at WWDC which talked about this, and we'll put links to those on the website. Um, the thinking behind them um, that kind of comes out in those sessions is, um, as one of the, the guys who runs one of these sessions at, at WWDC said, he said, we think you can add something to the experience of viewing a web page by taking something away. In other words, you can improve a web experience by limiting some of the content that appears essentially. Um, and they showed four different examples of this in these demos that they ran at WWDC. Um, one was uh, hiding a block of what it called clickbait links from a website. Um, so there's a block over on the left of links that were sort of clickbaity headlines and just making those disappear. Um, there was a tracking script that they blocked. There was hiding comments on a site that showed pictures of dogs and cats. Um, and then on that same website, um, the guy doing the demo decided he wanted to block all the pictures of cats because he was more of a dog person. And so he uh, walked through kind of how this would be done. And it's, it's a very simple approach. It basically uses... Uh, uh, very sort of uh, user-friendly language. It's, it's a JSON object, essentially, which is a list of triggers and actions. In other words, you set you know triggers based on if you see this kind of content in the code, uh, then this is the action you should take. And it could be hiding something, which means it still gets loaded, but just not displayed. Or it could be blocking it entirely, which means the resource never gets loaded. And therefore, the website never knows that you requested it or that you were browsing that, that particular page at all. So, um, so that's kind of what content blockers are. The interesting thing is that none of that, none of those demos that I mentioned involve advertising. Apple never mentioned the word advertising in presenting all of this, and yet that's kind of what people have uh, fixated on. Um, the other thing that's worth mentioning is this is a Safari thing, um, and so you might assume that it only applies when you're using the Safari app. 
But the other new thing that Apple's introduced at, at uh, WWDC and that's part of iOS 9 that's related to this is something called the Safari View Controller, which is basically a new way of doing an in-app browser within iOS apps that basically runs an instance of Safari with access to all your browsing data from Safari within an app in a very sort of sandboxed and walled-off way. So you now get all the functionality of Safari, including all your autofill passwords and that kind of thing, including your cookies associated with particular sites so that they can remember you and you don't have to sign in all over again and that kind of thing. So this is now a new way of doing an in-app browser. And again, as somebody doing a demo put it, we're trying to get all of our developers out of the business of making these miniature web browsers. So kind of providing an in-app browser on behalf of these developers. So if a developer is using that Safari view controller within their app for anything that involves browsing the open web, uh, then these content blockers will actually apply to that content as well. And that was sold as sort of a, a selling point for using uh, the view controller if you're a developer over you know, doing your own thing. What's worth noting is that a lot of major developers aren't using that yet. So Facebook and Twitter, for example, are not using the Safari view controller. So when you browse the web through their apps, you click on links and so on. Uh, the content blockers don't apply to that content. Um, as I said, Apple hasn't positioned this as about being about advertising at all. And yet that's kind of what everybody's fixated on. And that's mainly because ad blocking is kind of the best known example from the desktop of content blocking. Um, it's the most popular one. It's the thing that people tend to use content blockers for and ad blocking is kind of the category. Um, but this can be used to block any other kind of content, whether it's tracking scripts, whether it's images, whether it's videos, you know, whatever. All of that stuff can be blocked as well. It doesn't have to be about uh, advertising specifically. And a lot of the uh, apps that are actually available for iOS 9 do allow you to be quite granular in terms of what kind of content you do want to block, whether that's ads or something else. So you kind of partly answered this question, but I think it's worth more exploration. There's there's a fuss brewing, not brewing. It's in full, you know, full swing over this. Uh, there are pretty prominent uh, uh, news sites, for example, like The Verge has made a big deal out of the content blockers. There's been something of a public fight going on now because of this. Can you describe the fuss and describe what's happening and what the arguments are? Yeah, I mean, this is the interesting thing. This is kind of why I, I made a point to mention that Apple hasn't positioned this as about being about ad blocking because everybody else is seeing this about as about ad blocking specifically. And so that's a part of this that everybody has focused on. Um, and, you know, there are several content blocking apps now in the App Store since the launch of iOS 9. Um, several of them have been in the top 10 of paid apps, albeit not in the top 10 of grossing or even the top 100 in most cases. Um, but they've been quite popular, at least by the standards of those charts. Um, and, you know, the reality is if people were to use these apps in large numbers, then suddenly people wouldn't see ads on these sites. And for many news sites, it's either the only way they make money or one of their major sources of revenue. And having that be blocked on one of the major mobile platforms uh, could theoretically at least put a huge dent in their ad revenue. Um, and we've already seen that happen a little bit with some of the desktop ad blockers that are out there. So the concern is, you know, here's Apple, manufacturer of the major uh, you know, one of the two major mobile operating systems and the one that tends to attract the most attractive users, um, you know, putting ad blocking kind of front and center in its OS as these people see it uh, and therefore potentially driving this huge damage to uh, ad-based web businesses um, and especially to news sites and other uh, companies like that that do tend to be very heavily reliant on advertising. 
So what's the counter argument? I mean, why are people justifying these? Because it does seem it, it, to be potentially really destructive to these business models and to these companies that are producing, you know, ad-based content. What uh, I mean, why? What's the justification for this then? Yeah. So I think the the biggest challenge here is that um, there there are two things that that really get conflated, and I think that's the challenge here. One is I think people are generally accepting of advertising as a business model. You know, we've accepted it for years with television. We accept it with magazines. We have generally accepted on the web, at least in theory, as a business model. And effectively, you're sort of you know signing a virtual contract whenever you visit a site that has ads that you're willing to accept a certain level of advertising in return for free access to the content that they're providing um, and it's arguably the same with gmail and other uh, ad-based services that aren't necessarily content um, the challenge is that even though we're okay with the business model in many cases we may object to a couple of other things that are associated with advertising and one of them that's a bit more marginal um, is tracking so all the tracking that goes on and i say it's more marginal because i think most people either don't understand that or don't really understand the significance of it. The other thing, though, is the experience of advertising on the web. And that can be inc incredibly invasive, can be annoying, um, especially if there's an interstitial ad or a full screen kind of popover type ad. Um, that basically blocks the content. It can be really annoying to dismiss those. It's often very easy to accidentally click on the ad and therefore trigger a whole new tab or shift off that website um, and so the experience of advertising even if not the business model has been steadily worsening on the web uh, and the advertising the tracking and so on also slows down the delivery of the page it often takes much longer for the page to load um, there's the tracking that some people don't like about it as well and so people essentially feel like this is ruining the experience of the web and they'd rather block all this stuff from happening um, so that the experience can be purified if you like it can go back to what it ought to be and that's kind of what these demos and the guys doing the demos at, at WWDC was talking about, which is by taking something away from some websites, you actually add to the experience. You make it a better experience. And they were careful not to talk about advertising specifically, but it's clearly one of the main sort of culprits in this poor experience. Um, and that's a challenge here is, is, you know, the experience of advertising on the web, at least on some sites, has got really bad. How, <clears throat> see, here's, here's what I find kind of odd about this, and it's leading to my next question. Content blockers have been around for a long time relative to the web. On the desktop, they've been around for years and years. On Android, content blockers have been available for a while within Chrome. And so, I mean, how significant is this really in the end? It, especially because, you know, I, it, there are a lot of people that use iOS for browsing the web. But it, is it enough to upset all these business models? That's, I think, what I and, and other people are wondering. Yeah, so ad blockers have been around for a long time, but they haven't necessarily had sort of mainstream appeal. Um, there was a great clip that was doing the rounds recently from, I think it was the Howard Stern show on, on Sirius XM, in which somebody introduced him to the concept for the first time, and it was clear he was utterly unfamiliar with it and unaware that this was a thing that you could do. Um, you know, he's not a dumb guy, you know, he's generally fairly well informed about what's going on in the world. And yet he was completely new to this concept. And I suspect many people out there are also unfamiliar with the concept, or if they're familiar with it, don't really understand how it works, or how they'd actually do it in the browser of their choice on, on the device of their choice. And so, you know, I think one of the big worries here has been that with Apple getting into the game with iOS and iPhones being so incredibly popular, 
that this suddenly mainstreams it, that this makes it much more appealing and takes it from something that's a kind of a niche activity to something a lot of people are doing. And then you look at the rankings of some of these uh, content blocking apps over the last week or so since iOS 9 was released, you know, there are several in the top 10 of the top paid apps. And so they're, you know, not being directly promoted by Apple. And we can talk about that a bit more in a second, but they're certainly there, very visible on the app store. Um, and then, you know, all of this has been getting a ton of attention in the tech press, which, you know, even though some of it is uh, decrying the trend, you know, undoubtedly is raising awareness. I think the counterpoint to all of that is that Apple really isn't promoting this stuff. So even though it has a section of the App Store that's about new things that you can do in iOS 9, right now it only includes apps that do deep linking or replays within games. It doesn't include this content blocking category at all. So Apple isn't directly promoting these apps at the moment uh, and seems to in some ways be going out of the way to avoid doing that. Um, the second is that, you know, Marco Arment's app, um, you know, he developed a content blocking app called Peace, which was on the App Store for about two days. And he then had second thoughts and pulled it. And we, we know some numbers about that app. It was probably downloaded about 38,000 times. That's not very many. Even if you kind of multiply that by three or four and then extend it over the week or so since the iOS 9 apps first became available, you know, you're talking about less than a million downloads for all of these apps put together. And in the context of almost half a billion iPhone users, that's really not very many. And so for all the attention it's getting, it's getting that attention mostly in the tech press and among a fairly well-informed set of people. And it's not really going mainstream in that sense yet. The other thing is it only affects advertising of a certain kind. It doesn't affect native advertising, which, for example, is the main way that BuzzFeed generates its revenue because basically native advertising looks like any other article. So it looks like content rather than like an ad. It also doesn't affect uh, in-app advertising unless it's within the context of a browser. So Facebook or any other uh, ad-based uh, mobile app is utterly unaffected by this because their apps continue to show. It's only a browser-based blocking technology. So it doesn't affect that at all. Uh, and so, you know, for all the fuss about this, I suspect it's actually a lot less significant um, than many people are making out just because the applicability of it's a lot narrower than you'd think. The awareness and the adoption of this stuff is a lot narrower than uh, people might want you to believe. Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, I think this is all a little bit overblown. Uh, on the other hand, I, I feel like we are on kind of a slope that leads to greater adoption of this stuff over time. And, and I think the websites that serve up this obnoxious advertising largely have themselves to blame for it. The problem is, and this is kind of why Marco Armand ended up pulling his content blocker, um, the problem is that everything kind of gets swept up in the same category. So the obnoxious sites with the obnoxious ads get blocked, but in the process, so do all the sites that serve up entirely innocuous advertising. And, you know, John Gruber's talked about it on his page. Um, Marco Arment talked about the fact that his ad blocker would block the ads on his very own website, which are utterly unintrusive and very subtle and served up by the same platform as those on Daring Fireball. And that's the problem here is all the good stuff gets swept up with the bad. And most apps either don't allow whitelisting or it's too much of a pain for users to do whitelisting of individual sites. And so you get kind of everybody gets tired with the same brush. And I think that's the big risk here is that people give up on advertising altogether on the web and it becomes a, a non-viable business model for everybody, even those that use the technology very responsibly. And I, I think that's the biggest risk here. The good news is it's still marginal today, um, but it's quite possible that over time as we see greater adoption, if, if things don't start to change in the mainstream, um, then everybody goes down this route and ends up killing off a bunch of businesses that, that could be affected by all of this. So do you have a prediction then? I mean, it seems like there are sort of two major roads 
that we could be heading down. One is where advertisers start to tame their own behavior in order to discourage users from wanting to install these content blockers, because right now there aren't very many who have done that yet. But if things continue to be bad, there will probably be continued momentum, like you said. That seems like one path. The other could be an arms race, right? And I know this has already happened where some websites have, when you go visit on your phone, if you have the content blocker turned on, then they serve up a little message that says, sorry, you can't read our website or you can't view this content with your content blocker turned on. I mean, do you th- which way do you think we're headed or is it neither of the two? Yeah, I think there's a certain level of denial that kind of uh, sits behind some of those warning messages and and the kind of blocking of content in response to ad blocking software, um, you know, that, you know, a denial that they're really the source of the problem. Um, and, and so I think we'll see some of each, I think we'll see some of the saner websites saying, actually, we need to start turning this stuff down. Um, you know, I think you will see some other websites kind of trying to fight fire with fire, essentially saying, okay, you block our ads, we'll block your content. Um, and so I think you'll see some of both. I think one of the more enlightened responses that I've seen is from the Guardian newspaper in the UK, which when you, you visit their site with an ad blocker turned on, still shows you the content, but pops up a little message that's fairly subtle at the bottom of the screen that says, we noticed you're using an ad blocker. If you don't want to support our site through advertising, would you consider subscribing? Um, and so it's kind of a push to an alternative business model, kind of saying that's fair enough, you object to advertising. Here's another way you can support our site still. And so I think some sites may take that middle road, especially because even if they moderate their own policies, they may still get caught up in the kind of broad brush approach to, to blocking all ads. Um, and so I think we'll see some of each of these approaches. I think the more enlightened sites will go hopefully down the saner routes, um, but there will definitely be some sites that just say, fine, if you're going to block our ads, you're not going to see our content. I realize this is a hard prediction to make, but five years from now, where do you think the dust will have settled? Yeah, I I suspect we'll have something of a shift in the balance between advertising and other forms of content monetization. I think we'll also see a shift to apps where um, advertising will have to be subtler because um, they don't typically allow quite as much leeway in terms of taking over the full page and so on as uh, web pages do. And I think things like Apple News, which is another part of iOS 9, are going to force advertisers to tone down some of their advertising anyway, even in the context of an app. So I think there will just be a generally a saner approach. But I do think there'll be some businesses that can't make that transition where perhaps their content isn't unique or differentiated enough to justify people paying for their content. And yet they're not sophisticated enough to serve up better advertising Um, So a lot of businesses, I think, will probably fall by the wayside. Thankfully, I think they'll be the ones that probably add least to the conversation anyway from a quality perspective, and so it may not be so serious. All right, well, that's kind of the middle part of of today's show. The last part of the show, we're going to talk about uh, the new iPhones, and we've talked about most of the new features and so on already in the context of our coverage of Apple's events. Uh, and uh, But this week, the reviews came out from all those people that had review devices, so the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and so on. Um, and it's always interesting to read these reviews. And I, I kind of, uh, I read through a bunch of them when they came out yesterday morning, and uh, I... Uh, I felt there were some pretty clear themes from them, even though there were also some big differences. And so the themes that I I pulled out and I kind of tweeted about this was 3D touch is great and the headline feature of the new phones. The cameras are a bit better. Some people kind of went a bit further than that. Live photos are really fun, not life-changing necessarily, but a really fun new thing. And the new kind of glass and the new metal and so on is is solid and, and feels better in the hand. And 
and that kind of thing. There was a lot more detail behind it, but those were kind of the common themes. But then it was interesting to see how the reviews differed as well. And I've always felt like reviews are something of a Rorschach test. Um, so, you know, how you interpret it very much depends on where you're coming from and the existing sort of prejudices and biases you have. I think, um, the other thing that's worth noting is I suspect a lot of people that review these devices really don't enjoy the process. Um, I talked to somebody that's um, a tech columnist at one of the major national newspapers a while back, and he was saying that he really doesn't enjoy that part of his job. Um, you know, you get a new device every year, you have to find something new and different to say about it, even though it's in many ways the same as last year. And, you know, how do you do that? How do you make it interesting? And I suspect that kind of shines through in a lot of these reviews because you see people picking up on tiny details and making huge deals out of them. You see people being dismissive of things that other people find really interesting and really useful. And you just wonder sometimes if they're just kind of scrambling for something interesting and different to say just for the sake of saying it. Um, and I felt like there was quite a lot of that this time around. A lot of the reviews were framed in really strange ways or were dismissive of features that other people seem to think were really compelling. Um, I found BuzzFeed's reviews some of the most interesting because uh, they seem to be doing this thing where they're trying to appeal to regular people. They kind of abandon most of the usual language that's associated with tech reviews and just talk about their personal experience of these devices. And they actually had two of them done by different people. Um, and each of them took that approach. And I found it really refreshing, actually. Um, so I, I'd recommend those if you haven't read those yet. But Aaron, any kind of thoughts from what you read in those reviews? No, I, I'll be honest. I think we're well past the point where these product reviews make much of a difference for people in terms of their purchasing decisions. Right. And the iPhone and sort of the TikTok schedule with the iOS version of each iPhone. I, I think, I don't know, and Apple does such a good job of publicizing the new features themselves, I mean, the events get tons of press coverage. And so most people that are interested in a new iPhone are paying attention to the news a week and a half to two weeks before the review sites are ever posting anything. I, I just have a hard time imagining somebody reading one of these reviews anymore and saying, oh, I've decided to buy it because of this, or no, I don't think I'm going to buy it after all. I suspect for most people, it's just confirming a choice they've made at this point mm -hmm. rather than... And, you know, they'll probably find the review that that helps support their decision. But I, I don't know. I think we're just at a point. And it's with the iPhone specifically. I think I think with Android phones, reviews are still really important. Uh, but with the iPhone, it just seems like we're past the point where somebody's purchasing decision is going to be really influenced by any of these product reviews. Right. Yeah, I absolutely agreed. I mean, so many people are on a regular cycle, whether it's one year or two years, and they're just by default ordering the new phone. What's interesting, of course, is the pre-orders went live over a week before um, the reviews were out. So a lot of people pre-ordered the thing without seeing any kind of reviews at all. And I think, you know, if you look at the reasons why people buy certain devices, there are other things that are far more influential, including family and friend recommendations, loyalty to a particular brand. Um, in some cases, it's whatever the sales guy in the store is incentivized to sell this week if you're buying through a carrier. Um, but yeah, they're just, these things are less and less important as these uh, devices become more and more mature, more predictable as the quality is a known thing. And as people are on, you know, carrier plans that allow them to upgrade on a pretty predictable schedule as well. So, um, yeah, in that sense, they become less important. I, I um, think reviewers know this too. And that's yes. why they usually, the conversation is oriented to the people who have had their phone for a year rather than two years. 
because mm-hmm. if you've had your phone for two years, it's always like, well, upgrade, it'll make a big difference. It's always, mm-hmm. they, a lot of these reviews seem oriented to the people who've had their phone for only a year where upgrading is right. going to be more expensive, typically. Mm-hmm. Although yeah. that's becoming less and less the case with the new carrier plans. But right. uh, I don't know. I mean, this it, it, the carrier plans are going to make these especially meaningless, right? Because the new one-year upgrade cycles that T-Mobile and Sprint are pushing, mm-hmm. uh, that's going to, I mean... Th- Upgrading is going to be the default choice in the future, yeah. and these product reviews are going to have even less of, a, of an impact on that. Right, and Apple's own upgrade program is going to do the same thing. I mean, that right. allows you to upgrade every year now, too. I'm very curious to see how many people take advantage of that, but I've written about how I think that's going to be really huge. Um, one interesting thing, and we, we talked about the iOS and watchOS upgrade processes from a software perspective, but the pre-order process for iPhones is always pretty fraught as well. And, you know, I stayed up late to order one for my wife and, um, you know, I had all kinds of issues and I saw other people having other issues too. And, um, you know, eventually I got something to go through. I actually ordered two just to be on the safe side. I ordered one through at t which is our carrier, uh, but even though I ordered it at three minutes past the hour, um, it's still showing as shipping in October sometime, um, about a month after the iPhone actually becomes available. Um, the one I ordered through Apple, I used their new reservation process, which I think is fascinating. It's something we talked about a few weeks ago in anticipation of all of this, but we, we were discussing the watch and retail and talked about how they introduced some new things with the watch and the way that that's sold and appointments for try-ons in stores. And I feel like this is the Angela Aaron's influence, but I feel like she's extending that now to iPhone sales where you now make a reservation to buy it in store. And I feel like this year they're still allowing people to show up the day of and try to buy one, but I suspect over the next couple of years they're going to move to an entirely reservation-based system for goodness knows the first week or two of availability just to try to manage that and to try to reduce the lines at stores, which, you know, I think Apple in the past has largely seen as a positive as a sign of demand, but I think Angela Aarons, perhaps from a retail background, sees as slightly less positive and, and kind of a sign that perhaps things aren't working so well. And so it's interesting to see Apple, presumably under her leadership, moving to a slightly new and different process for, for buying these phones. Yeah, I also think that the way the pre-order period was extended versus the actual release, you know, I mean, there's a longer time to pre-order than yeah. it's been the case in the past. Uh, I'm curious how that's going to affect the way people analyze the numbers involved. I know T-Mobile today announced that their pre-orders are up 30% over last year, which is a mm-hmm. huge jump. Yeah. But and, and, and some of that may have to do with, uh, with the new way that they're selling these phones. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, part of me wonders if it's just because the pre-order period is longer. Yeah, and I, that's the trick, too, because Apple sort of said, you know, we're on track to be ahead of 10 million in the first weekend in terms of sales. But, um, of course, everything's different this time around. The first weekend is a week later than it was last time around. Pre-order period was longer. China's involved this time around, which it wasn't last time around. So there's all kinds of differences, which are going to make the numbers very difficult to compare um, because you're really not comparing on the same basis. I was going to say apples to apples, but that always seems too punny in the context <laughs> of what we're talking about. Um, but yeah, there's going to be, it's going to be very hard to pass those numbers. And I think really there's so much of supply in those numbers rather than demand as well that 
I always feel like you have to look at the second quarter, like the holiday quarter, to really know how these phones are going to sell. Because that first week, is, and it's, it's going to be less than a week this time around, before the end of this quarter, um, is so supply constrained that it really is meaningless to, to read much into it at all in terms of levels of demand and what the year-on-year -year growth rate is going to be in that kind of thing. I, I, um, I think that's right, but I don't think that's going to stop analysts from taking a relatively <laughs> no, flat no. sales change versus last year. And projecting that out a long way, I, that's that's mm -hmm. actually I think the standard everybody is going to be evaluating iPhone sales by is is if 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 the sales are relatively flat, not even worse. I don't think anybody expects them to be worse. Right. But I think there are a lot of people expecting flat sales change versus last year, mm -hmm. and uh, you know Apple's language so far, what they've announced, sounds a little bit like they're hedging. And, mm. and not being as precise as they could be in right. terms of sales. And so it's sort of leaving the door open for all of these people predicting flat sales to be vindicated. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I think that's true. Um, okay, well, I think we're about out of time, except we need to wrap up with our weekly pick. And uh, for anybody who hasn't uh, listened before, this is a segment we do at the end of every show where one of us, and we tend to take it in turns, recommends something that we've been enjoying. It could be a song, it could be a movie, it could be an app, it could be something physical. Uh, and this week it's Aaron's turn. So over to you, Aaron. So I'm going to recommend a band this week. And it's uh, for... It's, it's a relatively obscure band because it's local here, except they've just released their second album and have been on something of a national tour. I mean, no really huge venues, of course, but, uh, but they've been traveling around and have gotten really great responses. It's a band called The National Parks. And they describe themselves as an electronic alternative folk band, which is a weird combination of genres. Uh, but it's actually not that bad of a description. Um, I always kind of hate it when, when people describe their band in a way that is sort of mashing together different genres because you never know what to expect and it could mm -hmm. just be you know, a, a big flop of an experiment. But the truth is this is a band that, interestingly, has really found a voice for itself between the first and second album. The first album is much more just alternative folk. And the second album has a lot of new... Uh, they're, they're using new instruments. They've got a bigger band than they had before. They grew from what originally was just a two-member band, then a three-member band. They now have seven band members, and that allows them to have more rich kind of music. Um, their, uh, their new album is called Until I Live, uh, which is also the title track. And uh, it's got a lot of fun variety, and it's all lively. So if you're kind of put off by the folk part of their self-description, don't let that put you off to think it's moody music, because it's not. It's actually really kind of lively and energizing, which is one of the reasons I really like it. Um, if I were to recommend a track off of this new album, I'd recommend Monsters of the North. <clears throat> it's one of the most upbeat, has a great chorus, um, and has a really nice feel. If you are the kind of person who enjoys the outdoors, now their name, the National Parks, actually comes from the band leader's last name. So his name is Brady Parks, and so they called themselves the National Parks. But they've really embraced this idea of the National Parks, and so they, they, there's kind of an outdoorsy feel to it in a way, like I said, is really lively that I think uh, people may enjoy too. I know I really like it, and I'm excited to see how this band will grow. If people aren't, you know, if you're not familiar, Utah and Provo specifically have been 
a source for some pretty exciting acts lately. Neon Trees and Imagine Dragons both have come through Provo, if not originated here, uh, and kind of got a, a big boost uh, from the time they were playing in Provo. And And I think the National Parks has the potential to be a next kind of big hit. I don't know that they'll ever be as big as Imagine Dragons. Sorry, guys, if you're listening. But I do think they play awesome music. Uh, I've had a chance to see them live. They're great live, but a lot of bands are better live than they are in their albums because they kind of get overproduced and that's not the case with national parks i think their their albums are really fantastic and and so that's the band the national parks that's my pick and th- their other album their their album from a couple years ago called young is also really good yeah i think my wife's listened to some of that one and, and i've heard some of the tracks from that one and uh yeah interesting to hear the way they describe themselves it's not necessarily what i would have thought of but uh i'm curious i haven't listened to any of the second album yet so i have to go check that out and we'll put the links on the website for for the band and for for that album as well so you can go check that out well thank you for being with us for the past uh hour or so we're grateful that you joined us we hope you will join us again next week as always if you have any feedback or questions or even suggestions for future questions of the week then please uh submit those via twitter via the website or any other way that you can reach us and uh, if you feel like it you can leave us a review on itunes that would be helpful we'd love to get some more reviews up there so thanks again for joining us and we'll be with you again next week thanks